0: Well, good morning. My name is uh, Jeff, one of the, uh, the elders here. Glad that you are uh, with us this morning. As you are turning to uh, Romans 2, uh, verses 12 through 16 in, uh, in your Bibles, I want to tell you a little story. So I grew up uh, playing uh, soccer, and so soccer and tennis were the two sports that were kind of the constants throughout my childhood. But uh, soccer in particular was interesting because I was on the same team uh, for uh, my entire adolescence and so I started on that soccer team at five years old and went uh, all the way into high school on the exact same team and, uh, and so we were called the wild men and uh, we weren't the most athletic team out there but because after a little bit we had uh, kind of the core of the team had played together for six, seven, eight years uh, then we actually did, uh, did pretty good. But uh, I would often get bored in the middle of uh, a game. Uh, we might be uh, winning. And, uh, and so I would get bored and I would uh, do silly things like pretend I was blind. So it's the middle of the soccer game and I'm running around with my hands out like this and my eyes closed. Or I'd just sit down in the middle of the field or the pitch as they call it. And, uh, and so uh, that would be kind of what I would be doing. Meanwhile, my dad would be screaming at me to do something. Uh, and I would think, I am doing something. You know how much skill it takes for me to stay in character and uh, kind of resist every instinctual competitive urge that I have? And, uh, and so, uh, true story, uh, a member of that soccer team, the Wild Men, uh, was the valedictorian of my high school class, and in his valedictorian speech, he mentioned my soccer hijinks, and I thought, see dad, Vindication. And, uh, and so uh, that was my experience. So whenever I got older and uh, when I turned 16 and I needed to start saving for a car, I thought this would be a fun job to ref soccer games. Uh, and so uh, I went out and, uh, and purchased the, the uniform and the whistle, or actually two whistles. I had a little whistle around my neck, and then I had like a, like a ring pop whistle sort of thing. And, uh, and then I had the, the cards, uh, the yellow card, the red card. I had the little notebook that went into my shirt pocket. And, uh, and so I thought, man, this is the greatest. And uh, so I bought all that stuff. Or actually, my parents bought all that and never paid them back. So sorry about that. Uh, but uh, bought all this stuff, was ready to go, and I began to, uh, to ref some games. Uh, and it wasn't nearly as much fun as, uh, fun as I thought it would be. Uh, here were, because I was a, a new ref, I would typically get the, uh, the younger kids' uh, games. And so these would be five-year-olds. And, uh, and just they're just running into each other. That's all they're doing. There's no actual skill. There's no actual uh, strategy behind the game. Uh, but the parents thought there should be a whole lot of strategy. So these are kids that are just trying not to fall down while they're running. And the dad's yelling like things like, do a bicycle kick or something like that, which is when you do a f- kind of a flip and you kick it behind your head. And uh, and so that was just it was just utter chaos. It seemed like kind of a a, a prelude to the Hunger Games. Every single little uh, game that we played, and uh, and so uh, I refed for uh, for one season and only one season because I didn't enjoy it that much. But I never actually got paid. The reason that I got didn't get paid is because uh, after uh, each game, you'd have to fill out a card, and it would have uh, the different teams, it would have the date and the time and all that, so that you could actually uh, check it. Uh, and then uh, you would write the score and, uh, you know, anybody that you had to, to give a red card to, which wasn't a lot of kids, but some parents had to get some red cards. Uh, and, uh, and so you, you would take those then and you'd have to mail them in. Well, uh, for some reason, probably just laziness on my part, I, uh, I didn't mail those in. My thought was instead of mailing each week all my different cards, I'll wait and I'll mail them all together and I'll get like a big mega check. Right? Like at the end of the season, I'll get this huge check. Maybe they'll even present me one of these huge cardboard checks, like made out to science or something like that. And, uh, and so that was my uh, idea. But for whatever reason, again, probably just because I'm lazy, uh, I never actually mailed in anything. So I reffed, uh, and I never actually got paid. I had the uniform. I did the games. But I didn't actually do what needed to be done in order to get paid. Likewise, our passage this morning, we see that, uh, that the Jews... First century Israel, they had the law, they had the uniform, uh, they even played some of the game, but they didn't actually do what it took in order to be rewarded. You see, the, the, the law for first century Israel was kind of like a ring, it was the sign that they were married uh, to Israel, but in our passage this morning, Paul's going to say, if you like it, you better do more than just put a ring on it, you better actually be, a, be able to begin to obey uh, this law. That's our passage this morning. Israel had the uniform, they had all the things in place, but they weren't actually living out the things that uh, that the law would call them to do. So what I want to do this morning, because our passage is, uh, actually it's pretty complex. This is, this is probably, Romans 2 is probably one of the most, if not the most difficult chapter in the book of Romans, uh, and uh, and so our particular passage is one of the most uh, difficult passages within entire book of Romans. And so what I want to do is I want to reread the passage, uh, and then I want to give us a a bit of an overview of it. I want to kind of, let's look at the forest before we begin to look at some of the trees, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll begin to dive into the text itself. And so uh, follow along with me. We should have it up on the screen, and uh, and then also if you have a, a Bible in your lap or whatever. Starting in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So I want to give the general flow, and then we'll pray and begin to dive in uh, to the text. And so last week we saw verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So this passage is flowing out of that. So we have verse 12 is then going to show, to prove that God uh, judges impartially. He shows no partiality. And that He condemns both those uh, who are under the Mosaic law and also those who are not under the Mosaic law. That's verse 12. Verse 13 is then going to show the ground for God's judgment. That it's not a failure to hear, but a failure to obey that God is uh, condemning uh, them for. And then verses 14 through 15 answers the question, but if God judges for failing to obey the law, then what of the Gentiles who do not have the Mosaic law? And Paul says they do have a law. They may not have the Mosaic law, but they have this moral law that's written on their heart and then verse 16 is going to show that God's judgment is fair. Again, it's impartial as he looks upon even the inward desires and motivations of obedience. So that's kind of the forest uh, of the, uh, the flow of Paul's uh, thought this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the text. Or actually, we'll pray together. So I want to just ask you first just to, uh, to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you an undivided, undistracted mind and heart this morning. You might come in angry or frustrated or confused or grieving or whatever it might be, that the Lord would in these moments kind of peel through those different layers and allow you to be ministered to through His Word. And then would you pray that for those around you, whether they're friends or family members or strangers, that the Lord would do the same work in their hearts and lives. And then would you pray for me that the Lord would give me boldness and clarity and help with this difficult passage. So, Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together under uh, the goodness, the authority, the sufficiency, the beauty of your word, and pray that uh, you might uh, affect our lives and our hearts by it, that we might be convicted, that those of us uh, who uh, need to be uh, encouraged would find encouragement for those of us who need to be corrected, would find correction uh, just that you would minister to your people in diverse ways as we need. And so, we're grateful you're a good father. You not only give good gifts, but you know what gifts we need. And so, would you give them to us this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. So, we'll begin in uh, verse 12. Romans 2 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged. By the law. So, we begin with this word for, and we've seen before how the word for or therefore is kind of tying all of these different verses together. We're not to read this passage in isolation from the rest of the flow of Paul's thought uh, because it's all one dense interwoven uh, argument. And so, it, it, it's really playing off of what he so, uh, said in, uh, in verse 11 that God shows no partiality. We talked about that last week. It literally means that phrase. Literally means he doesn't look on the face. He doesn't receive the face. Uh, that he's no respecter of persons. His his uh, his grace uh, and mercy and judgment is not based on our ethnicity or our gender or our race or our socioeconomic status or anything like that. God doesn't prefer men to women or rich to poor or poor to rich. Or bearded to unbearded, or whatever. I don't think he likes goatees, but that's another thing. We talked about this a little bit as we walked through the book of uh, Proverbs, and we saw how uh, in most of these depictions of Lady Justice, she's depicted as this, uh, this statue, and she's got a blindfold on. And the idea there is she's not looking at faces, she's looking at the facts. She doesn't care about the faces, she doesn't care about uh, just feelings only, she's actually concerned with facts. Likewise, The same is true of Yahweh, the same is true of God. God is impartial, and that's going to kind of form the groundwork out of which this is going uh, to be coming. That's kind of the soil uh, that uh, our text is coming out of uh, this week. So as proof of that, he says what he says in verse 12, as proof of the fact that God shows no partiality, uh, he mentions the law. Now, generally, when you see the phrase the law, in Paul's writings, it's not uh, used of the law in general. He's not talking about the U.S. Constitution. He's not talking about the laws of gravity or thermodynamics. He's not talking about L.A. law. He's not even talking about, like, uh, the law of Christ or something like that. Whenever Paul mentions the law, he means some, uh, something by that that is very particular. What he means by that is the Mosaic law. So I want to give you three facts about the Mosaic law that's going to be helpful for us uh, as, uh, as you might have noticed, even as I was reading the passage, you see the, the word law come up over and over and over again. So these are three facts about the Mosaic law that you should know that are going to be helpful for us as we understand the passage. Uh, first one, that the Hebrew word Torah means law. You might have heard of the Torah before or Torah. Uh, it is a Hebrew word that means law, and it's used to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, which is the context in which the Mosaic law uh, is given. So we see the Mosaic law given there uh, to Israel. That's the second uh, thing that we want to talk about, about the Mosaic law, that we're talking about these specific regulations that were handed down to the nation of Israel in the wilderness. They're at Sinai. Uh, So you see that in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then again in Deuteronomy. Actually, the word Deuteronomy is formed from two words, meaning second law. It's not a second law that, uh, that God gives, but it's the second giving of the law to the second generation. As the first generation had died off in the wilderness, God gives the law again now to the second generation. And so these are the specific regulations that are handed down to I- Israel in the wilderness. Again, not general law, but a particular law. Every time He mentions the law, that's what He's talking about uh, here, the Mosaic law. In particular, it concerns these 613, that's how uh, many unique commands that we see, 613 commands that were given to Israel. Again, uh, they're in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land, and it concerns everything, every aspect uh, of life, of what it means to be uh, a Jew. Uh, All of these are articulated within the Mosaic Law, everything from moral commands to ceremonial commands the civil commands, all of these things are intertwined within this uh, Mosaic law. So this is the law that Paul is referencing here. Whenever he says that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, this is the law that he's talking about, the Mosaic law. They're given to Israel. Uh, but, uh, so it's a particular law given to a particular people. But then that raises the question, how does this flow out of verse 11? Verse 11 says that God shows no partiality and yet what we just talked about is the Mosaic Law is only given to a particular pe- uh, people. So how is God not impartial? Didn't God only give the Mosaic Law to only one nation? Well, yes. So how is He not partial to Jews? Because as we will see, even though uh, the Gentiles are without the Mosaic Law, they still have this moral, natural law that's written on their hearts It's kind of like, uh, imagine that you're an American citizen and you're abroad and you commit a crime overseas. Let's say that uh, one of our Olympian athletes uh, were to commit some sort of crime in South Korea, not that any of the U.S. uh, Olympians would ever commit some sort of crime at the Olympics. Uh, But um, imagine this is the case, hypothetically so. Uh, Well, that, that Olympian, that athlete is not going to be condemned under American law right? They are there in Pyeongchang or wherever it might be. They are there. They're going to be judged uh, not according to the U.S. Constitution, not according to the laws uh, of uh, the great state of Texas or whatever it might be. They're going to be judged by South Korean laws. That's kind of like what's going on here. Gentiles are judged just according to a principle beside the Mosaic Law, besides the Mosaic Law. God won't hold them responsible for abiding by the Mosaic Law but he still holds them responsible to this natural moral law that's embedded in all of humanity. We saw that even in chapter 1. In chapter 1, at the very end, we saw that all Gentiles, all people know God's righteous decrees as it comes to morality. But not only is this knowledge universal, but the suppression of that knowledge is universal. That all people universally suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness, according to chapter 1. By the way, sometimes you might uh, see this passage used as a justification for what's often called dual covenant theology. Uh, that's a kind of a theological term, dual covenant theology. That's the idea that God makes a covenant with the Gentiles that is different from His covenant that He makes with, uh, with Jews today. That God makes a covenant with Gentiles today and God makes a covenant with Jews today. Gentiles have to be saved by coming to faith in Christ Whereas Jews simply can be saved still by following the Mosaic law. And so some might point to this passage say, see, it talks about here these sort of different laws. You've got two laws. You've got two covenants. For instance, I read a quote by a, a, a rabbi who said uh, the following. Uh, he said, We are all wholly agreed as to what Christ and His church mean to the world. No one can reach the Father save through Him. No one can reach the Father. The situation is quite different for one who does not have to reach the Father because he is already with him. and this is true of the people of Israel, and that's the exact opposite of what Paul is arguing here, as he puts Israel, uh, the, the Israelite, the Jew and the Gentile, on the same footing, both alike condemned uh, before. God. We talked about this quite a bit in the book of Ephesians as we walk through the reality that there is no longer Jew and Gentile, that we have been grafted together by faith in Christ into one and only one body. Even as it relates to this passage, notice, notice what he says in verse 12. Notice what he says here in, uh, in voice, uh, verse uh, 12. His point is not how Jews and Gentiles alike can be saved, His point is instead how they are condemned. Notice what it says. It says that they perish without the law or they're judged by the law. The whole point of the passage is condemnation. He's writing about perishing and being judged. He says that Jews perish under the precepts of the Mosaic law and Gentiles perish under the moral law that they reject. So this is not saying that Jews and Gentiles have two different ways of salvation. It's saying Jews and Gentiles have two different Uh, sort of uh, things that they are under uh, in terms of God's judgment and condemnation. So it's not about how they're saved, but how they're condemned. That's the entire flow of chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and we should feel the weight of that. As we move through chapters 1 and 2 and into chapter 3, we should feel almost like this text is like a python and it's restricting us. Each passage restricts us just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more it suffocates us it takes away our air so that by the time we get to chapter three and we get to the gospel we see that is our only hope whatsoever so that's how this text begins god shows no partiality and that's proven that's evidenced by the fact that both jews and gentiles are condemned and that simply possessing the law is no ultimate advantage simply having a ring doesn't mean that you're necessarily married Let's look at verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So I want to remind us before we get into this text, remind us of something we talked about uh, last week in regards to faith and works. We believe as Protestants, we are saved by grace through faith, grace alone through faith alone. But we also believe that that faith, that is true saving faith, justifying faith, that that faith is never alone. So we are saved not by works, but neither are we saved without works. Because true faith always is going to bear the fruit of works. Good trees always bear good fruit. And so that's something that we talked about here uh, last week. But that's not Paul's point. As it wasn't Paul's point last week, Everything that Zach talked about last week when he said we're taking a step away from the text just to talk about this issue, but that's not the main point of the text itself. That's the case uh, this week as well. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is simply to condemn the presumption of the Jews that they will be saved merely by possessing the law, simply on the basis of their heritage or their history or their ethnicity or whatever it might be. In chapter 3, he'll show us that no one lives up to the law. But for now, he's simply critiquing the assumptions and presuppositions of his uh, fellow Jews. So Paul is absolutely not saying that we can be justified by doing the Mosaic law. In, in fact, if you look at Paul's theology, his sort of overarching theology that we're going to uh, see built out over the book of Ephesians or, or Romans and beyond. Uh, if you read all of Paul, for Paul, the law only brings about condemnation. The law itself is good, but sinful hearts are going to twist it into this tool of condemnation. So in chapter 3, he's going to make it clear that none can live up to that standard uh, because of sin. Next week, Zach is going to to be preaching. He's going to talk about, he's going to give this illustration for how the law can uh, be a good thing, and yet it can have negative effects for us. And he's got this really uh, funny, humorous illustration. I thought, I should just steal it. I'm preaching before him. I'll just use it and pass it off as my own. Nobody will know. Uh, but I won't. I'll give instead a, a more serious sort of illustration of this reality. And then Zach can give you a, a sillier one uh, next week. So imagine think of the law as a car. All right? Think about all the, the, the good that comes from having a car, all the opportunities for you to, uh, to stay connected to family, all the opportunities for uh, missional engagement of your, uh, of your co-workers, you get to drive to work, all of these sorts of benefits that come about simply by uh, possessing a car. So think of the law as a car. It's good, it's useful for getting you where you need to go. But now imagine what has happened in the fall with sin, what's happened is mankind universally has gone out to the bar and we have gotten completely plastered, completely intoxicated, completely inebriated, well beyond the legal limit where we were fall over, pass out drunk. That's what sin has done to us. Now, is in light of this a car a good thing for us? No, what was a tool for good has now become a tool for condemnation. That's what this law does. In light of sin, what was intended as this good thing has now become the very means by which we stand condemned. So, this passage is not to be read out of context. It's not giving Paul's answer for what must one do to be justified, what must one do to be saved. You don't read this passage and says it's. Not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So therefore, Paul must think that in order to be saved, in order to be justified, what I need to do is I need to go out and live according to the precepts of the Mosaic Law. All of of a sudden, I need to watch the things that I eat and what I wear and those sorts of things uh, through this lens of the Mosaic Law. That's not Paul's point at all. Instead, he's simply trying to reveal the folly of the Jewish boast. The folly of the Jewish boast, which is that simply by hearing the law, you're justified. Again, in chapter 3, he's going to clarify that no one can be justified by the law. Even if you were to go out and to attempt to live under the precepts of the, of the Mosaic law, you couldn't live up to it. That's what we're going to find in chapter 3. But that's not his point here. His point here is just cutting the legs out of the boast of his own countrymen. Hearing and doing are this contrast. And it's not merely by hearing, but in doing that we're saved. And that's a contrast that we see throughout Scripture. Jesus Himself points to this contrast in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of Mine and does them, hearing and doing, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, there's that contrast, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We see the same contrast in James chapter 1, verses 22-25, where he writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, but he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you see again this contrast between hearing and doing. It's not hearing alone which justifies. It's doing which justifies. So why does Paul introduce this contrast between hearing and doing right here in this argument in light of what he said in uh, uh, the rest of chapter 2. Well, I said it earlier that, that for Jews, they thought of this Mosaic law as a uniform. It was a badge. It was a cultural marker. If you're a first century Jew, you had two things that really distinguished you as a Jew. You had circumcision, which we'll actually talk about in a couple of weeks. That's where the text goes. And then you also had the law. You had these different uh, legal requirements that specified you, that marked you out, uh, that distinguished you from the other Gentile nations. That was the only sort of divide that you had. You had Jew and you had Gentile. And so you had uh, both circumcision and the law were these sort of markers uh, that marked you out uh, for, uh, from the, the nations. But Paul is going to say that playing the game is what matters, not just wearing the uniform. Or to go back to my uh, soccer illustration, I had the uniform. I ref the games, but I didn't get paid because I never turned in the cards. Likewise, Jews merely hearing the law is not enough. They have to do the law. They have to do what it says in order to be rewarding. That's what Paul is criticizing. Jews have the uniform. They have the whistles. They have the red cards and all of that, but that isn't enough. If you're a first century Jew, you attended synagogue day after day after day. You heard that uh, the, uh, the Torah expounded Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. And you assume that you're secure on that basis. Simply hearing. I'm attending. I'm hearing. I'm hearing the law expounded week after week. They had this long printout from Ancestry.com proving that they're of the people of Israel. They have this huge Torah scroll right there on their coffee table. And they felt like that was a little get-out-of-jail-free card from their little community chest. And Paul says, that's bankrupt in and of itself. Simply having those markers, simply having the ring itself doesn't mean that you're actually in covenant with Yahweh. That's Paul's concern. In chapter 1, we saw he showed the bankruptcy of the nations. All nations, all Gentiles are bankrupt before God. And here he shows the bankruptcy, the poverty, the spiritual poverty of the nation of Israel, his own fellow countrymen. And then in chapter 3, he'll tie those together. Israel and Gentile alike are both affected by this plague of sin. And then not only will he show the bankruptcy of Israel and Gentile before God, but he begins to unravel the riches of the gospel. So that's what Israel's doing here. They're boasting and having the law, but they're not perfectly acting upon it. Besides, Paul's going to say Gentiles have access to a law, even if they don't have the written law. That's what he says in verses 14 through 15. So let's read those. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, this might be the two most difficult verses within one of the most difficult verses. Paragraphs within one of the most difficult chapters within the book of Romans. So I'm going to ask for a little bit of uh, grace because this is uh, going to be uh, a fairly difficult, tangled knot. Uh, but hopefully, we can begin to untie it with a little bit of uh, work. But the real the difficulty comes in really trying to identify who are these Gentiles that uh, that Paul is talking about, and then understanding what does he mean whenever it says that they're doing what the law requires. That's really the the difficulty in unraveling what the text is talking about. Who are these Gentiles? Uh, And then how are they doing what the law uh, requires? And some might read this as saying that Gentiles can be saved apart from Christ simply by obeying the Mosaic law we've talked about, or by obeying the moral law, uh, as we talked about, since they don't have the Mosaic law. But that's definitely not what he's talking about. Remember, this whole section is about condemnation, not salvation. Paul's not saying what you must do to be justified. He's saying the reason that you are condemned. That's his entire point. So we need to read this within the context of his flow. Paul's point is not that Gentiles will be saved by obeying moral commands, but simply that Israel cannot boast in simply hearing and not heeding the law. So it doesn't mean that Gentiles are saved merely by being good, by merely listening to their conscience or anything like that. But beyond that... Trying to figure out what Paul's point is is kind of hard, and there's really two ways uh, of reading this, and kind of scholars and commentaries are kind of divided uh, on, uh, on which way it goes, um, but we'll, we'll talk about where most lean in a second. First, the first way that uh, some people take this is that it's just talking of Gentiles in general, Gentiles in general who sometimes carry out certain commands within the Mosaic Law. So, think of all the Ten Commandments. And how many of those, a lot of us have probably never actually broken, right? Not looking at a heart level like Jesus does, but just on an external level. Most of us in this room probably haven't actually physically murdered somebody. Most of us in this room actually haven't uh, engaged in an actual adulterous affair. Uh, So most of us could kind of keep some of the precepts of the law even as a Gentile, even if you didn't have access to the Mosaic law. You go to even the the most pagan uh, cultures in the world and there's certain uh, aspects of morality that we see articulated within the Mosaic Law. But the reason that they are abiding by those within that culture are not because they have access to the Old Testament, simply because it's embedded. It's written in their heart. They have this moral law. So that's the first way uh, of taking this, that even Gentiles would sometimes be obedient to their parents and faithful to their spouses. They occasionally do what the law requires. Just not perfectly. That's one view. Uh, The other view is that this isn't talking of Gentiles in general, but instead this is talking about believing Gentiles. This is talking about Christian Gentiles who fulfill the law by the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit uh, has uh, enabled them uh, to fulfill certain aspects of the law. So, which is it? Is this passage talking about Gentiles in general sometimes doing. Uh, what the law says, or Christian Gentiles fulfilling the law by the Spirit. And I think the reason for the difficulty comes, uh, at at least for two reasons. Uh, The first one is because both are theologically true. You read the rest of the, uh, the New Testament and you see evidences for both of these as being true concepts. There actually absolutely is this reality that even pagans sometimes do certain aspects of the Mosaic Law not all pagans are murderers, not all pagans are adulterers, not all pagans are thieves or liars or whatever it might be. So, there's certain aspects of morality we see within every culture. So, that's certainly true, but we also see that it's certainly true. We see throughout other texts that the Spirit does enable His people to obey certain commands. And so, which is it? Is it just Gentiles in general, or is this talking about uh, believers in uh, particular. And, uh, and so, um, I'm going to, uh, to, to give uh, my view, but, uh, but again, it, the more that we have wrestled through this, as I have read commentaries and I've read scholars and I've talked to the other guys and I've thought about it and prayed about it, uh, I really think that, uh, that coming down on an answer though is not really going to be as helpful uh, because that's not Paul's main point. But let me sh- tell you Uh, kind of the the difficulties, and then where we land, uh, at least where I have landed uh, after uh, this week. And so, uh, uh, you have some who might say that this, again, that this is talking about Gentile Christians. This is talking about Gentile Christians who obey the law because they have been enabled uh, by uh, the Spirit. The reason I think that that is uh, hard is because the uh, entire context is dealing with condemnation. The entire context is dealing with shame. The entire context is dealing uh, with the fact that you are accused, which doesn't sit, seem to fit with the idea that these are talking about Gentile Christians. On the other hand, if it's just Gentiles in general, why does the previous verse say doers of the law will be justified? Although the context is not about justification, there's at least the mention of the Word there. And then in a couple of paragraphs, we have uh, the fact that the Spirit has written Uh, the law upon the hearts of his people and he circumcised their hearts. And so that's certainly talking about Gentile Christians. Uh, But I land in thinking that this is talking about just Gentiles in general uh, because of the fact that it doesn't say that they're doing the work by grace, which I would expect. It says that they're doing it by nature, which wouldn't be true of a believing Gentile. Believing Gentiles don't do the works that they do by nature. They do it by grace. Now, you might respond, well, what about a new nature? But that's not the way that Paul tends to use uh, the word nature. Uh, But the big reason is because believers are not under condemnation. And that is the context. What does it talk about here about their consciences accusing them since Christ has bore our accusations? So although it's not clear I land in saying that this is talking about even pagan peoples who sometimes do parts of the law. There is this natural law written on the hearts of all of humanity uh, that they are obedient to, that Gentiles might not have the same uniform, to use that analogy, but sometimes you look out the window and you see them playing, and they show that at least some of the rules they know as evidenced by the way that they uh, play the game. And so I think what Paul is saying here is if you whistle every single infraction, every handball, every foul and all that for a five-year-old soccer player, how much more should you do that for someone who is a professional? If God judges the Gentiles who don't have the full law, how much more is He going to judge the Jews? Again, remember, what He's doing is not saying how we're justified. He's showing why we're condemned. Especially in this context, why Jews are going to be condemned. He's pulling out the rug. I think that is what he is saying that it's an extension of verse 13 that hearing the law is not enough Paul's still concerned with cutting the legs out of the Jewish boast that merely hearing the law or possessing the law was going to be sufficient so how do these verses prove that regardless of which view you take how do these verses prove that because what he says is that Gentiles possess a law to some degree and they are still condemned gentiles possess a law and yet they're still condemned they've quote unquote heard a law and that hearing doesn't save them so what makes you think that your hearing is going to save you i think is what paul is saying merely having a law is not enough the gentiles have a law not the mosaic law but this moral law so merely having a law is not enough doing the law is what is uh what matters that hearing is worthless apart from Heeding. So whether it's believing Gentiles or unbelieving Gentiles, it doesn't matter. The point still remains that the Jewish boast is bankrupt, and that's what he's dealing with in this context. If those without the law can deal, still do parts of the law, then merely possessing it must not be sufficient. That's the point, I think, of the passage. And what I want to do now is I want to step aside for a second from the main point of the passage. I want to deal with something that's kind of a peripheral issue that I think the passage touches upon, even if it's not uh, the primary concern, and that is, what does this text say of those who have never heard the gospel? What does this text say of those who have never heard the gospel? Again, that's not Paul's concern here. He's dealing with Jewish Gentiles uh, uh, conditions, Uh, but I think it's important for us to deal with this because there is a similarity that exists between uh, Gentiles who didn't have… the full access to the Mosaic law and those today who might not have heard uh, the gospel. And so I want to briefly mention that. So if you recall in chapter one, we saw this, that all alike, all humanity, all ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, unrighteousness, uh, of man is condemned by God. The wrath of God remains upon all humanity because they have suppressed the truth about God. All humanity has done that. Every single person has an innate moral uh, conscience, a knowledge of God that we suppress, that we reject. It's not that mankind is condemned for rejecting something they've never heard. It's because that which we have heard, we have rejected, we have walked against. Let me try to illustrate this with uh, an example. Every time that the staff goes out to, uh, to lunch, there is, there's a couple of conversations. One, we have this ongoing conversations. Uh, about where we're gonna eat because everybody likes something different. We've talked about that uh, before. There's also this conversation around who's going to drive. And the conversation always comes down to Zach wanting to drive. Uh, and, uh, And the main reason that Zach wants to drive is because he doesn't want Tim to drive, all right? So he doesn't wanna kind of like pull the little lever of the slot machine and it comes up Tim. And the reason that he doesn't want Tim to drive is because he is convinced that Tim's gonna kill us, right? Tim's driving style is a lot like his personality, right? So I have long since made peace that I'm going to die in Tim's Prius, but Zach has not made peace uh, with this reality. And so Zach always wants to drive. And Zach likes to mention the fact that he's never been in a wreck uh, and he's also never gotten a ticket, right? So bravo, Zach. He's never gotten a wreck, never gotten a ticket. I like to remind him that just because you've never gotten a ticket doesn't mean you've never broken the law just means you've never been caught. He's actually been pulled over a couple of times, but I like to imagine that he will tell a little joke or do a little magic trick or something like that, and he just gets off uh, with with a warning. Whereas I, on the other hand, have gotten two tickets that I can recall. There may be a third in there, but uh, not more than that. Um, And uh, and so I've gotten two tickets in my life. The first was when I was a teenager, and the second was uh, about 12 years ago. So I was in uh, I was in seminary. I was taking a, a winter uh, master sort of thing, and the class was like from 7 a.m. to like almost 7 p.m. or something like that, five days a week. And so I was living uh, about 45 minutes away from the seminary, and so I found a friend who lived about five minutes from the seminary who would let me stay at his house, so I didn't have to uh, to you know turn an already long day into even longer with the commute and all that. And so I was staying at this buddy's house in the uh, the first morning. I uh, am unfamiliar with the neighborhood, and I'm driving, and I turn out of the neighborhood onto this still residential area, but I turn onto this street, and, uh, and I'm going like 32 miles per hour. I think that was the exact speed that I was going. Assuming it's a residential area, the speed limit's probably 30 to 35. Little did I know I had turned into a school zone. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm just driving along, and all of a sudden there's lights behind me. I get pulled over. turns out I'm in a school zone. The cop doesn't care that I uh, had no idea I was in a school zone. And I even went back. I drove back, and I looked, and the, the street that I turned off of was right behind the school zone sign. So I literally never had an opportunity to see it. And so I felt like that was super unjust, Unjust, but I didn't have, like, the mortal uh, or kind of the, the fortitude in order to, uh, to fight it. And I think a lot of people think that's kind of like what it must have been like. That's what it's like for uh, the uh, Gentiles to not have the Mosaic Law. That's what it's like to never have heard the gospel. It's this injustice. You never really had an opportunity. That's a really bad illustration of the condition of Gentiles within the first century, or, or of those who have never heard the gospel today. My other ticket is actually a much better illustration of that reality. And that was whenever, uh, again, I was a teenager. I'd only been driving for a short period of time. My convictions as it relates to speeding weren't uh, developed until much later in life. And so I had a bit of a lead foot. uh, And uh, surprisingly, I only got uh, one ticket. Uh, But uh, I got pulled over. And and just like that previous uh, example that I gave, I didn't know the speed limit. I had no idea what the exact speed limit was, but I knew 100% I was speeding. I didn't know if the speed limit was actually 45 or 50 or maybe 55, but I was going like 70. So I knew 100% I knew that I was speeding. I think that's a better illustration for what Paul is saying here of Gentiles within the first century. of They might not have access to the entire Mosaic law, but they have enough written on their hearts that they know that they are embedded in sin. And likewise, for those who have never heard the gospel, there is enough to condemn them in uh, regards to the nature uh, and uh, and knowledge that they have of God simply written on uh, their hearts. So Gentiles may not have a full knowledge of the law, but they have enough to condemn them and unbelievers may never hear the gospel, but their condemnation is not on the basis of what they don't know, but what they do know and consequently suppress and reject. So the passage again isn't really about those who have never heard the gospel, but we see a similar sort of idea that God's condemnation is just. It's just by virtue of the moral law that He has written on man's heart. Again, that's not the main point here. The point here is simply that the Jews were saying, look at our 613 speed limit signs. Look at our 613 speed limit signs as they zoom past some Gentiles that are going the speed limit. That's Paul's concern here that's Paul's point and so as a result of that there is judgment for Israel verse 16 on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus this brings everything to a climax in the previous verse Paul had written about the conscience and its role in accusing or excusing but here he clarifies that the conscience is not the ultimate judge your conscience Israel's conscience the Gentiles conscience no conscience is going to be the ultimate judge. God is the judge. And his judgment takes into account obedience, but not only obedience, but also intention and motivation and everything else. God's judgment is impartial. Where we began, the idea of God's impartiality, it's impartial since it looks not only on the outward circumstances, but even on the inward disposition. It looks even at motivation and intention and all of those sorts of things. There's no evidence that's overlooked. Even the secret things are revealed. And this reminds me of my daughter in this season, uh, Larkin. She's not here today. She's not feeling well. Uh, but she loves to say, more hide. It's literally More is literally the only sign language sign that she ever learned. And uh, for some reason, she just picked up on that. So she'll just do this and say, more hide, more hide. And uh, And so that will mostly just comprise her just running over to a corner where there's There's no protection there whatsoever. There's no concealment whatsoever, but she's just simply standing in the corner like this. And then she loves it where I go, where's Larkin? And she just squeals with delight as if she's actually hidden there. Or she'll come and she'll want me to sit in the very middle of the room. uh, And she'll say, more hide. And uh, I'll take a blanket and I'll put it over both of our heads. And we'll just sit there over and over and over again. And, and Paul's point here is that just like that blanket or standing in a corner without any sort of concealment doesn't hide us, so the, merely having the law doesn't hide you, or merely obeying the law doesn't hide you either. For God looks not just on the hearing or the doing, but even the desiring as well. Even the secrets of men are judged by Jesus, even the hidden things. Hiding is this really interesting phenomenon. Think all the way back to the garden. And what man's first response is, he sins and she sins and they instantly begin to sew leaves together as they experience shame. But as they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, what do they do? They go and they hide. Like Larkin in a corner, they're hiding right out in the wide open to God who sees everything. Nothing is overlooked so the gospel is this unveiling it's this exposing nothing is hidden all is brought to light every word every thought every deed every desire nothing is overlooked and so all mankind either stands before God utterly exposed and utterly vulnerable or completely clothed with Christ that's what he's building up to that we'll see as we get into chapter 3 and beyond the gospel is both a message of uncovering and also covering those in Christ are clothed those apart are exposed and notice that the text says that the gospel brings judgment the gospel brings judgment when many of us think of the gospel we think of this sort of happy hippie Jesus and grandfatherly God just kind of giving out candy and redemption or something uh, like that and yet Paul is going to say that part of the gospel is this message of judgment because the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, which is really bad news for any who don't submit to the king. So that's verses 12 through 16. What, is the, what in the world does that have to do with us, right? None of us in this room are first century Roman Jews. So what does this have to do with us? How do we get from a first century church in Rome to a 21st century church in McKinney. I doubt that any of us here today are thinking, they're presuming that because you've heard the Old Testament that you're secure. But nonetheless, we can be guilty of the same heart, the same posture, the same disposition of our spirit. You might find yourself at times asking the question Won't the fact that I went to church every Sunday, won't the fact that I went to church every Sunday, I memorized scripture, I attended an accountability group, count for something, won't the fact that I've gone to a Bible study every week of my life, I've read the Bible every morning and listened to a Bible app on my way to work and listened to a sermon on the way back, won't that count for something? And listen, in light of this passage, the answer is this, yes, it will count for something. But what it counts for is greater condemnation. That's it. Greater accountability. Hearing the law merely increases your accountability, your responsibility to act in accordance with that law. Knowledge merely increases your responsibility apart from repentance. As hearing the law doesn't justify the Jews, so simply hearing the gospel doesn't justify us this morning. If our hearing is not connected to doing, that's what chapters 1 through 3, again, that's what these passages are building up. They're constricting us more and more and more and more and more so that we wouldn't merely hear it, but we would feel the weight of it. That we would respond in light of the gospel that he gets to in chapter 3. The good news of the kingdom of God who is putting this sin-scarred world back to rights through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. This is now this new covenant and this new law. And it's not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. And this law simply says this. It doesn't tell us to go around doing all of these moral things, although that is uh, an implication of it. At its very foundation, the law says this to repent and to trust Christ. And that's it. That's it. To trust Christ, not to hide behind our works, not to hide behind our church attendance, or our giving statements, or anything else. Biblically, we're either hidden in Christ or we're hiding from Christ. Some people choose to hide from Christ by skipping church. Some people choose to hide from Christ on the front pew. Some people choose to hide from Christ by going to every accountability group. Some people choose to hide from Christ behind a pulpit or behind a mic stand or whatever else it might be that's the application of this text the application of this text is not to go and to do more to try harder anything like that the application of this text is just simply to recognize the fact that god is impartial and that there is judgment coming and that mankind is accountable so that we would recognize that we stand condemned apart from jesus christ and that we might flee to him so the question is are you wearing the uniform and just going through the motions or are you truly resting in the grace and mercy the gospel, and that's what we'll talk about as we take communion. So let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, a word that exposes our intentions and motivations and desires, a word that's given to a particular people, to a particular context, but one which has universal implication and application for us as we think through our own lives and where we might seek to hide from you we might seek to hide behind our good works or whatever else it might be and so I pray that you would forgive us and help us Lord to walk faithfully before you in light of the good news that you've given us in your son it's in his name we pray amen